Hello, uh, this is Rob Cohen, and I am back. This is the second episode of the Thriller Fest binge reading program that I've been on for the last few weeks or so. Um, three books over the last couple weeks. All three of them are featured in the Face-Off book coming out at the beginning of June. I uh, actually ordered four more books to um, further... Uh, further, further, further my uh, course of action to read as many of the face-off authors as possible prior to its release and certainly prior to Thriller Fest when it, uh, when I attend it uh, second week of July. Um, so the three books, uh, two of them were authors I'd never read before. One of them was the second book in the Cotton Malone series uh, by Steve Barry. Um, that's the series that, as I mentioned last time, I'm really going to focus on trying to read as many of as possible. The rest of these authors, um, if I can get at least one book under my belt by the time Thriller Fest, that would be great. I've already mentioned that I'm committed to the uh, Peter James um, series involving character Roy Grace. Um, but other than that, I've, I've picked up a couple of other books which uh, involve the characters in the Face-Off book. I did end up buying the Heather Graham book, uh, which has the character of Michael Quinn. What's interesting, by the way, when I went to the bookstore to look for Heather Graham's books, um, I don't remember which character um, her main character goes up against in Face-Off, um, but I did uh, look up before I walked in the bookstore as to what character of hers is the participating character. And what's interesting is when I was looking in the bookstore, I could not find the Heather Graham books in the mystery and thriller section. I couldn't find the Heather Graham books in the literature or fiction section. Um, so yeah, I found it in the romance section. And believe me, as soon as I saw that, um, my heart sank and I, I just had this internal struggle of whether I could actually bring myself to reading a romance novel. Um, and so as I was standing in the bookstore and I'm Googling um, Heather Graham and reading a little bit about her her writing styles. I understand that she's got different different series of books, you know, different character series, and some of them are romance. And look, it didn't help that the the on the binding the publisher was Harlequin. It was like really this is I'm gonna stoop to this level of a Harlequin romance novel. But I did notice that uh, the character that uh, participates in the Face Off. Uh, book is uh, not necessarily the the romance Heather Graham, but it is a little bit more the mystery um, Heather Graham. So I did buy the first book in that series, and uh, I also bought the first book in the John Sanford series, the uh, the Prey series, involving his character uh, Lucas Davenport, which obviously I've seen in the bookstores for many many years and have never picked up. Uh, I did also pick up the third book in the uh, Steve Barry Cotton Malone series, The Venetian Betrayal, I think is what it's called. And there was a fourth book. Oh, oh, yeah, this fourth book that I picked up was a kid's book, Goosebumps by R.L. Stein, because there's a uh, character from the R.L. Stein books that shows up in the face-off, uh, goes up against Aloysius Pendergast from the Lincoln, Chi Lincoln Preston Lincoln Child Douglas Preston books, which I'm a big fan of. Um, and I think this is the character Slappy the Ventriloquist Dummy. Um, so I found the first book that that shows up in, which is a kid's book. It's only like 115 pages or something like that. And I'll obviously get that hopefully under my belt by the time Thriller Fest and Face Off uh, comes out. So the books that I read this time, um, three of them, two of them by authors I'd never read before. One of them is um, an author who has created a very, very successful series of books. 
the first book that I did read was also turned into a movie starring Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the books actually in reverse order of the dates that I read them. So um, I'm going to talk about The Bone Collector first by Jeffrey Deaver. Then I'm going to talk about Steve Barry's second Cotton Malone book, The Alexandria Link. And then the third book, The Pièce de Résistance, the Linwood Barclay book, Too Close to Home. Now the reason why I want to go in reverse order is because I seriously just finished The Bone Collector like five minutes ago. So it's very, very fresh in my mind. Um, in fact, while I was reading the book, I was having just myriads of different thoughts about the book, my perceptions on the book. You know, a lot of times books require um, like a gestation period, some time to um, reflect on it, to let it sink in and, you know, think about it, let it resonate a little bit before you give a knee-jerk reaction or or, um, review of it. And with The Bone Collector, I had so many thoughts as I was reading the book that I didn't, I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget them. Um, which is why I want to talk about them first. By now, it's been about a week and a half since I read uh, Linwood Barclay's book, Too Close to Home, and I, I'm just disappointed to say that I probably don't remember as much about it as I did when I immediately finished it. And in fact, when I did finish the book, I was ready to you know, come in here and record, give you uh, 15, 20 minutes about the book because I was that excited about it. And I held off. I wanted to make sure that I made better use of the time. And so I've read two books since then, and I'm going to do my best to tell you all the reasons why I thought that book was just absolutely so fantastic. Um, But The Bone Collector by Jeffrey Deaver, um, if you're not familiar with the series, these are the um, Lincoln Rhyme character, uh, Lincoln Rhyme, who was played by Denzel Washington in the movie uh, from 1999, which incidentally enough, uh, apparently bears no, no close resemblance to the character as described in the book at all. Um, I don't think that uh, Lincoln Rhyme is African-American. I don't think that he is, um, well, African-American. I mean, there's so many other physical differences, if I recall from the book's description of him, which, by the way, does not provide a strong description of him, so maybe that's why um, Denzel Washington was cast. Uh, Another reason certainly is star power and the ability to sell a movie. Nevertheless, it was very difficult for me to read the book without picturing Denzel Washington, without picturing Angelina Jolie, and in fact, it didn't really detract from my reading experience at all. Um, What I did do is, knowing that there was a movie that had been made, I went to imdb.com and I looked at the cast of characters so that I could associate um, the characters in the book with the actors that played them. And I learned something quite distressing, which is that only other than um, Angelina Jolie, Denzel Washington, and Ed O'Neill, who plays um, Salido, uh, it didn't appear that there were any other characters which bore the same names as those characters in the book. Um, and made me wonder why why they do that. Why I guess I've had this problem with a lot of different books that were turned into movies, and I'm sure you've had the same thoughts. Why is it that? you know, the producers or whoever it is who options the book to develop into a movie, they obviously felt highly enough and strongly enough about the book itself that it would make a good movie. That That's why they invested so much money and, and time into developing the project into a screenplay. Why did they then go and change significant portions of the book when they put it up on the screen? I don't understand that. Um, and I know that the authors don't have a lot of participation in that because once they sell the book, or at least sell the rights to uh, to the book to develop, they pretty much relinquish any and all control after that fact. But it, it kind of always 
I just never understood that. Uh, and this one, I'm interested in seeing the movie just to see how close they kept to the book. But knowing that a lot of the characters' names had changed, I wonder how much the story changed. Uh, but anyways, The Bone Collector, uh, as you probably know, or if you don't know, um, Lincoln Rhyme is is paralyzed. Um, yeah, it starts the book when we first meet him, he is paralyzed. He had suffered a uh, fracture of the spinal, of the, you know, whatever the medical terminology is for his paralysis, while he was on the job investigating a crime, doing a um, forensic examination of a crime scene. Um, you know, the building he was in collapsed, he was crushed, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so he's been paralyzed, I think, for about three and a half years or so. So that in and of itself gave me a couple of initial thoughts that I wanted to share with you. Um, the first is, um, one of the things that is of particular discomfort to me is a paralysis. I feel um, an immense amount of, of empathy for people who are par paralyzed, who have no ability to control their bodily functions, to walk, to move, to do anything other than, at least in this instance, speak and maybe control his neck and control one of his fingers. And it is very uncomfortable to read a story that involves a character who has that type of a disability, who is who ha who cannot function for himself. Now, one of the things that it did do, separate from the discomfort aspect of it, is look, people who are paralyzed are not unable to lead productive lives. And in this situation, even though Lincoln Rhyme has um, been paralyzed for a few years and throughout the course of the book is struggling with his desire to basically end his own life and the difficulties that he has in accomplishing that, um, he, he can be a productive member of society. He absolutely is. His mind functions perfectly. And throughout the book, you see how somebody who even is confined to um, a medical bed with uh, round-the-clock care and um, you know concern for him can still solve a crime. Um, and that's a fantastic lesson, a fantastic demonstration of the power of the human mind, the power of the the personalities of people who, even though they are faced with, uh, 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 you know, a, a, um, extreme paralysis or an uncurable um, disease or disability, can still be productive members of society. And that was absolutely wonderful. But I'm uncomfortable by just that idea of somebody who is in that type of a situation. And so there were aspects of the book which were very uncomfortable to read um, because the character wanted to, or the uh, author wanted to create in the reader empathy for Lincoln um, and, and learning what he went through. And I think that, that Jeffrey Deaver, the author, wanted the reader to feel a little bit of approval for Lincoln when he decided that he was going to um, end his life or seek out a method by which to end his life. And I think a lot of us, as we would be reading this book, would say, yeah, you know what? I get it. Um, I understand why you'd want to do that. Who would want to live this way? And aside from the Aside from the, uh, you know, uh, benefits to society that, that this person can provide, there's less satisfaction out of it because of the limitations of movement and limitations of freedom. 
And there's a, a wonderful passage in the book where Lincoln and um, the female officer who he's somewhat adopted to be his eyes and ears and feet on the ground at these crime scenes, Amelia Sachs, played by Angelina Jolie in the movie, she tries to convince him not to do it, not to take his own life. And um, she, she struggles. And all of the reasons that she comes up with, he's already considered and he's discounted. And I think that as a reader, it was necessary for us to go through the uncomfortable explanation of his disability and what his life is like and the insertion and removal of catheters and the changing of diapers and, you know, even down to his having somebody required to shave him. And, you know, he kind of takes on a initial perception or a, a characterization of Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, who is confined to, in the, at least in the movie, a wheelchair, only freedom is staring outside his window. And in fact, as we meet Lincoln Rhyme, I think that he's staring outside his window, looking at the birds and looking at the falcons. And you understand that they, they represent two completely polar opposites of freedom. You've got Lincoln, who is confined to this bed, who can barely move one finger on his hand, let alone walk. And you've got these birds and falcons who have the power to fly away and go wherever they'd like. And I think there was a very important reason why the author um, introduced Lincoln to us in that way. But as I was reading that aspect of the book, at least from the outset, and I'm going to take a drink right now, um, one of the things that, that struck me or gave me pause to think is why did the author choose to start the series with Lincoln already paralyzed? I I think about how it would be if we took a character who has already been established through three, four, five, ten, twelve books, twenty books, um, you know, uh, as I've mentioned many, many times, what if we were to take a Harry Bosch or an Alex Delaware or an Elvis Cole and we were to, after this long period of time in which we've developed a, a particular connection to these characters and an affinity to them, if they were to then befall some sort of a tragedy where we don't have the opportunity to continue to know them the way we used to. And I, it, it made me think, what if these books had started with Lincoln Rhyme being a perfectly capable officer, police officer, prior to his um, to paralysis, and then after a course of books, then the paralysis, and then the future. How would we as the readers gravitate towards that character, or would we not only gravitate, would we rebel against the character? Would we feel pain? Would we feel um, enough of a, of a negative reaction to what the author did to us because we would feel it as a personal friend. How much would we feel a negative reaction that we would refuse to continue to read? And I wonder if that's a risk that the author takes. Um, Was there a specific reason why Deaver decided that his character would be paralyzed from day one as far as the book series goes? Um, I wonder because... As we read, especially as we read series of books, we develop a connection to the characters that we do empathize with them. There are some characters who are very superficial. They don't have depth. We, we read them 
even over the course of 15 or 20 books, but we never get to know them. We don't learn about their home lives. We don't learn about their, their backgrounds. They're just, every book is a procedure. And if something were to happen to one of those characters, how would we feel? And yet then I look at the characters that you develop a more deep connection to, the characters that you go through the ups and downs with, the characters that you see their marriages, you see their divorces, you see their births of their children, you see the, um, the heights of their, their highs and the lows of their depression. And then, should a tragedy befall, it would be as if a family member of ours was, was stricken down. And how would we as the reading public, how would we respond to that? I, the, the, the clearest or closest analogy or example that I can think of is Sherlock Holmes, who, you know, the people of England, or if not the world, uh, at the time that the books were written in the, I think, 1880s, 1890s, they viewed Sherlock Holmes as a real person. And when, when Arthur Conan Doyle threw him off of Reichenbach Falls, presumably to his death, there was widespread mourning about the death of this character because the people had made him into such a real person that they felt as if um, a family member had died. So it's an interesting concept, but one that I'm not honestly ready to embrace because I can't think of my favorite characters as being not mortal's not the right word. Human, human, and and not in a negative negative connotation. Not human, meaning I don't want to think of them as three dimensional people who could be walking, you know, the earth or you know, active real people. But human, meaning, you know, that that suffer debilitations more than just a gunshot wound to the shoulder or a flesh wound or a black eye or something that commonly happens to our heroes during the books because very rarely do they get through the entire story without having some sort of a a confrontation with the bad guy which results in some sort of pain. I mean, if you were to think about how often some of these characters have been shot or or knifed or punched or kicked in the nuts or whatever it is, you realize that they go through an immense amount of torture. But to think about our, our heroes, because that's what they are, as as being human, meaning they can be touched by the same cancer or illness or just fucked up situation that regular people on the street can be affected by, I think it might take away from the reading experience. I really don't know. I, I And look, if any of you have suggestions, I'm really willing to listen um, because I, I honestly don't know. Um, the idea about having um, Lincoln rhyme in the um, paralyzed at the start of the story, I think was meant to do two things. It, it one, was designed to show that just because somebody's paralyzed doesn't mean that their their mind fails to work and they are no longer productive members of society. That's one. The second one was, let's not forget that this book, as it pr- progresses, turns into what amounts to a buddy cop book. You know, it's not Lethal Weapon and it's not um, 
you know, Alex Delaware and Milo Sturgis, but it's a buddy cop story, except the buddy cops don't actually go out to the scene together and they don't have donuts together or go eat burritos or, or you know, interrogate a suspect together. They don't play good cop, bad cop, but they are a buddy cop duo. There's Lincoln, who's the brains of the you know, brains of the operation sitting in his bed or lying in his bed in his apartment. And then there's Amelia Sachs, who's feet on the ground, um, you know, headset in her ear, taking instructions from Lincoln, who's, you know, miles and miles away. Um, so it, it's an interesting difference or diff- interesting twist on the, um, on the buddy cop, uh, buddy cop genre. That was the first 100 and 150 pages or so was really a struggle for me to kind of get through that because I had these conflicting thoughts. I had this this level of discomfort with, with Lincoln. But again, I, I think it was necessary to develop to develop that connection with him, to develop that empathy with him, to develop not only the, the understanding of his decision to try and end his life, but also view him as somewhat he doesn't maybe he doesn't view himself as or at least view him as somebody who um, can still provide a huge amount of benefit to to society despite being um, confined to this bed um, so anyways that that's my initial impressions about the the bone collector the idea about the bone collector is um, there's a guy who drives a taxi cab very similar by the way to uh, dead like you by Peter James where the victims were picked up by a taxi cab in a lot of circumstances. Um, he picks up his victims and he kills them. And he kills them in very different ways. And every once in a while we see, um, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the uh, killer and his motivations. We learn that he, we know as a reader that he's following um, a, a crimes of New York of the early 20th century textbook or a nonfiction book. So he's trying to, uh, you know, follow them one by one as this one mass murderer killed all these people, he's sort of, um, you know, reenacting those murders. Um, but as those murders take place, then we've got Lincoln Rhyme who's brought in to consult from a forensic standpoint, and he gets the, uh, the initial, the cop on the scene at the first murder, he enlists her help to go out to the crime scene and assist. And of course, they put the pieces together and by Lincoln's amazing powers of intellect and deduction, he's able to um, not necessarily stay a step ahead of the murder, but uh, the murders actually start to slow down because uh, Lincoln and Amelia Sachs end up being successful on a couple of those occasions in saving the victims before they are actually killed. There's some interesting byplay at one point involving the feds, the FBI, because there's some UN peace meetings that are going on. This all takes place in New York City. And one of the FBI investigators gets a tip that there's some um, incident that's going to go down at the UN. And so the FBI thinks that the murder, uh, the murders that are taking place are connected to the UN. And so they try and take over. There's this power struggle, yada, yada, yada. I didn't quite like that so much. It just seemed like a little bit of a waste of time to me. But I understood why it was there. And it actually, by the way, figured in prominently at the end of the book, which really kind of was like a, whoa, that that wasn't what I was expecting how the book ended. Not that I liked it, but it was a surprising ending. Um, but anyways, the real core of the story is... Um, not only solving the crime, but the relationship between Lincoln and Amelia 
and the rejuvenation of Lincoln as a crime scene expert as opposed to a cripple. And that's how he views himself. He had been viewing himself that way for three and a half years. He didn't want his wife to have to go through his struggle. So he divorced her and sent her on her way, gave her a pass to forget about him. And he's a very... um, He's a very empathetic character, but he's also not very likable. And his likability at the beginning certainly does start to wane. Uh, his non-likability at the beginning starts to wane as time goes on because he starts to develop this relationship with Amelia and she gets him to open up a little bit. And you learn that that Amelia and Lincoln are both uh, wounded birds, so to speak, that are dealing with their own personal demons. And they find a kinship. And we learn that Amelia is supposedly this drop-dead gorgeous model type whose father was a cop, and she can't get into a relationship anymore. She's been burned by this prior relationship, which is the source of her um, internal and emotional struggles. And the thing that she can't deal with is that Whoever it is that she ends up finding is interested in her, they are only interested in the the physical relationship, whereas she wants more of an emotional or intellectual relationship. And she gets that with Lincoln. And there's a very touching scene where she, um, at the end of a particularly harrowing day, and there's a kidnapping and all kinds of stuff, um, she decides she's going to stay at at his apartment, uh, but decides she doesn't want to stay in the chair anymore. Uh, there's a bed downstairs, but she says she doesn't want to stay downstairs, and she actually climbs into bed with Lincoln and cuddles with him, and it's kind of touching. I mean, you you feel for Lincoln because he's got, you know, probably for the first time in his life, he's got this supermodel-ish, you know, woman in his bed, and he can't do anything about it, Um, but that's what she needed, and, um, you know, she feels there's a connection to him because of their... um, status as sort of wounded birds together, even though hers is a super, not superficial, but it's not a physical impairment. His is certainly physical. Um, With respect to the actual uh, resolution of the book and the revealing of the villain, I had a problem with it because um, authors, when they create these um, these conflicts involving the, the criminal nature, and they want to, in a lot of circumstances, the the reward for the reader is when the, the villain is actually somebody who you've seen throughout the book. And the author that can can weave the story together of the crime and the and the resolution while keeping the identity of the culprit secret but also putting the culprit in front of you is really a, a deft balance that needs to be walked. And some authors are very, very good at it. Some are not so good at it. And some authors skirt that issue completely and decide that the culprit is going to be somebody who you've never heard of before. And those books are fine. If you know that's what you're getting into, then fine. Let let that be. Um, but this one kind of wanted to be both. And I, I struggled with it when the reveal was made because... Frankly, I would have been happier if the if the culprit was a nobody. I really would have. I remember I read um, uh, one of the Case Scarpetta books by by um, Patricia Cornwell, and I was disappointed because at the end of the day, the culprit was a nobody. It was like a 
bus boy or a cabin boy or I mean somebody that nobody had ever heard of before, a character who hadn't shown up in the book. And I was disappointed. But in this book, when the reveal comes, it's somebody who really was sort of a non a non functioning entity in the book. He had a couple of scenes, didn't really make his presence well known. That may be that there were too many characters involved, but perhaps the idea was the more characters, the more likely it was that it would throw the reader off the scent of who the real culprit was, but we really didn't have a way of knowing who it was. So when the reveal came, it was kind of like, oh, it's him? Okay. I didn't really have a way of knowing, and I, I would never have guessed. So I guess good on you for not providing us with all the information so that we as a reader could participate in the detection. But then again, I don't think the concept of the book was to allow the reader in on the process of detection as much as it was to give the reader an insight into Lincoln, the relationship with Amelia, the way that a handicapped person could certainly contribute in immense ways despite a physical disability. And um, I think that the author was just trying to figure out a way to bring it all together um, and end it in a way that was somewhat satisfying so it wasn't just John Doe off the street. Um, It was a 510-page book. It moved fast at parts. It moved slow at parts. Um, I found myself really binge reading. I was reading 75, 100 pages at a time. Um, not that it was because it was compulsively readable, um, but I, I just knew that it was going to be a little bit longer for me to read it if I sat there and read a couple pages at a time. So I really put a, an effort on it. And on top of that, I, I spent the last couple of days doing some more exercising and exercising that I could read while doing. And so I was able to, you know, ride a stationary bike for 45 minutes and read 50 pages. So um, that's why I was able to really kind of read this book in, in the course of, uh, let's see, it's Friday. I started on Monday, so four or five days. Um, so Jeffrey Deaver, The Bone Collector. You know, honestly, I'm not sure if I'd read another book. Not because I didn't like it, not because um, I I had too many problems with it. Um, I just don't know whether the characters grabbed me enough to want to read more. Um, I'd like to see, I guess, how the character develops. I imagine at some point Lincoln decides that he doesn't want to kill himself. Um, But as I mentioned in the last episode, I kind of have to decide which of these characters I want to commit to and which ones I don't. And uh, I'm not sure yet about Lincoln Rhyme. I just don't know. Uh, We'll see. As I read some of these other books and compare the series, it may turn out that this is a character who is more compelling than some of the others, in which case I will pick up the second book. But for right now, um, I don't really have any plans to read the second book. I'll go to the bookstore and check out what the second book is, see if it looks intriguing. Um, And then we'll we'll go from there. So that was The uh, Bone Collector by uh, Jeffrey Deaver. And now the second book, going back in reverse order, Steve Barry, The Alexandria Link. Now, you remember how I felt about the first book, The Templar Legacy. And as I said, it seemed like all of the later books in the series um, got better, or they were, you know, next week's episode looks far, far more interesting than this week's. The Alexandria Link felt a little bit similar to The Templar Legacy because the idea was um, this one, they're looking for the... um, the Library of Alexandria, and whatever it is. Not important to me. I mean, it was an, a library that was formed, you know, long before Jesus was born, or at some point, at that point, uh, B.C., whatever it was. And allegedly it contained the very first writings of the Old Testament. And that's where the sum and substance of the, the drama of the book came into play. 
very similar to the Templar Legacy, which is why this felt somewhat like a carbon copy, a little bit. Because in the Templar Legacy, it was trying to uh, discover whatever it was, which, if disclosed to the world, could give a brand new perspective on all of Christianity, right? Because they would have dis disclosed the root of Jesus Christ or whatever the story, whether the resurrection actually took place. And in the Alexandria link, the root of the struggle is if the original draft version of the Old Testament is discovered that it exists in, in this library of Alexandria, then it will serve to undo all of the struggles and wars that were fought over Palestine. And a lot is made in about this, the 1948 Declaration of Independence of, of Israel. Because according to the Old Testament, Israel, as was given to the Jewish people by God, the geographical markers as found in the Old Testament bear no striking resemblance at all to current-day Israel. And in fact, the concept as proposed by the book is that the land that God had promised to the Jewish people as Israel was actually in a different country altogether, in which case you create a whole big cluster F, because if this were to get out, that Israel of 1948 and of current day was actually not the Israel promised to the Jewish people by God, but was supposed to be located someplace else, you've got just, you know, the world will explode and time will undo itself or whatever it is. You understand the political ramifications of, of that type of a, of a disclosure. So it seems similar to the Templar legacy. Now, one of the things that helped to create more drama and tension for this book, as opposed to the Templar legacy, is the initial premise that there's a time deadline. And I mentioned it before. When you put a time deadline in a story, it creates immediate tension and it creates stress and, and anxiety that time is running out and something needs to be done. And for Cotton Malone in this book, the story begins that he is notified that he has 72 hours to find the Alexandria link, whoever, whoever or whatever this link is that will point the direction to the Library of Alexandria, or else Cotton Malone's son will be killed because Cotton Malone's son has been kidnapped. And so you've got right there um, this time, the 72 hours. Something needs to be done in 72 hours or else something bad will happen. And it really caused the first 100 and so 125 pages or so of the book to speed along. I mean, really, you've got a ticking clock, so something, something needs to happen and quick. But at the end of the first section of the book, um, Cotton Malone is reunited with his son. And right then, it's as if the ticking clock kind of stops. And there's no longer this gun to the head of our main character who has to finish, I'm sorry, 85 pages. No more this ticking clock gun against his head to our main character who has to really figure out the mystery and track down the Alexandria link and solve the puzzle within this 72-hour period of time. So I was worried that after that first 85 pages, the book would slow down. 
and it did in some parts, and it sped up in other parts. Um, he did something, Seabury did what something that he did in the first book, where he really added a whole bunch of characters, and he had stories going in different directions. In fact, this one had multiple storylines all going at the same time because you've got Cotton Malone and his ex-wife who are going through Europe to try and find the Alexandria link in the Library of Alexandria. You've got the the bad guys who are trying to control everything, very similar to the bad guys in the Templar legacy who are trying to control everything. Um, and they're in Vienna, Austria. You've got Cotton's uh, former boss with the Magellan billet, Stephanie, who is back in Washington and Atlanta, who's trying to at least being he's she's involved with all of the uh, search for the library and the Alexandria link and there's leaks and there's the attorney general and there's the president and uh, as I'm discussing it my head's starting to spin a little bit as I'm sure your head is starting to spin a little bit which is why the book was um, you know a good 490 pages long um, but that's not that it was bad um, I liked it. I liked it better than I liked the Alexand uh, the Templar Legacy because I did feel that it moved quicker. I thought it was much easier to understand. I thought that it was more straightforward as far as the importance of the information that was being sought and how the people who, the bad guys, how they were going to utilize this information and why it was so important to them and why it was so important to keep it secret. And so that was why I gave it a four stars as opposed to the two stars that I gave the Temporal Legacy. Now, one of the things that bothered me, and it bothered me about the Templar Legacy, and it bothered me about this book, and I sure hope it gets better, is our hero, Cotton Malone, is supposed to be the, the man. He's Jack Reacher. He's... Harry Bosch, he's Indiana Jones, he's, you know, you name it, he's your, he's your Jack Ryan, he's the hero, he's the guy who knows the answer to everything, knows his way out of every situation, knows how to fight any bad guy, whether it be hand-to-hand -hand combat, or guns, or knives, or nunchucks, or you name it, he knows how to defuse the bomb, he's the ultimate, you know, true, real American hero, and yet, in the Templar Legacy and in the Alexandria Link, he makes the dumbest decisions at times. And us as readers, or me as a reader, maybe I'm the only one. I'm not going to break my arm patting myself on the back about this, but um, there were actions that he was taking which I wanted to stand up and yell at the scream if, if I was in a movie theater, don't do that, the bad guy is behind you, and... Of course, he did it. The bad guy was behind him, and bad shit happened. And Cotton didn't foresee those things. Now, in the Templar legacy, I get it. I'll, I get it. I'll give him a pass, because he was retired, and it just so happens that uh, the book starts with him at his bookstore in Copenhagen, and he sees his former boss, Stephanie, and Stephanie's purse gets stolen, and Cotton chases the perp, the perpetrator, the thief, throughout the streets of Copenhagen and chases him up to the top of a of a cathedral or tower, whatever it is, and the guy, in, in lieu of getting caught by Cotton, jumps off the top of the building and kills himself. So at that point, Cotton doesn't really have any reason to know that this is now he's wrapped back up in this international intrigue and, and he needs to put on his, his um, you know, real American hero hat and get back to work. But... In the Alexandria link, he is told on page one 
that he's got 72 hours to do these things. Not, not page one, I apologize. Page, uh, page seven. He's told, you've got 72 hours. Your son has been kidnapped. Go find the Alexandria link or else we'll kill him. So he automatically should put on his real American hero hat and get ready to go. I mean, these types of training, these types of, of characteristics don't die. You may put them on the shelf when when he retires, but they, they're ingrained in who he is. So when he goes and makes dumb decisions, he walks into traps, he gets ambushed, he, he does the obvious, and of course the bad guys are anticipating this and they are ready to nail him. It just got frustrating. It's like, why are you doing that? Come on, man. You know better than this. You should know better than this. And that was what was frustrating about the, the beginning of the book. Um, I don't remember very well how the Templar legacy ended. One of the things that did bother me about the end of this book is um, our, our main guy, Cotton, doesn't actually end up saving the day at the end. Um, he obviously is instrumental in it, but the true... Um, the true resolution or the true action which gave rise to the conclusion of the story wasn't by him um and that was a little bit disappointing um but on the whole i will say that i liked the book because i liked that it moved quickly um i liked that it jumped back and forth a bit and so it kept the story fresh i find that if you follow one character sometimes if you follow the character entirely from front to back um it gets a little bit monotonous unless unless and i'll get to that in the next book unless there's um constant drama or constant tension or constant anxiety and this it really alternated i mean it was it was sort of like um shuffling cards is that a good analogy i don't even know what that meant i don't i'm not sure what that means um but really it was bouncing off of a of a of a trampoline rubber walled room you're bouncing here with this character now bouncing here with this character now bouncing here with this character and, and all around the board um and so i found that when reading books like that it it helps to move the book the story along because as you're reading this you're really anticipating what's going to happen with your your hero who was you know left in a cliffhanger when you last finished the chapter and now you've got to get two more chapters until you find what he says again, or, or at least what happens with that character, what, what the resolution of the cliffhanger was. Um, so I liked it. I am going to continue. I've got the Venetian betrayal coming next, and uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, um, and I don't know what book it is, but when they get to England, when they get to the United States, I know that there's been a couple of books. I know his most recent book, The Lincoln Myth, just came out last week, and that's the United States. There's one involving Thomas Jefferson, obviously U.S. I think Amy had told me there's one involving Paris. There's one in, in, um, in London. And man, I, I think I just want to write these books just for the purpose of being able to say I need to go to these places. I mean, come on, these like, what better write-off is it than oh, I've got to go to Europe again? I got to study, you know, this, that, and the other of the, the Louvre, or I've got to go to, you know, the Victoria and Albert Museum or Stonehenge or whatever it is. Um, so that that was the Alexandria link. Um, I don't remember if there was anything else I really wanted to talk about because that, those were the highlights. It was just I hope Cotton gets smarter. I mean, after a while, he can't keep saying, "Why does this? Why did you know? Why does this always happen to me? I'm retired. I'm out. 
Once I'm out, they keep pulling me back in. Okay, we get it. At some point, you're either going to go back to work or you're just going to um, just you're, you're going to uh, give in to the idea that your life is never going to be normal. Your idea of running your little bookstore in Copenhagen is never going to happen, dude. Otherwise, the series would end and, and you'd have to find something else. Um, so the last book, which was actually the first book I read over the last couple of weeks, is this uh, book, Too Close to Home by Linwood Barclay. And I think I mentioned at the end of the last podcast that it was a 500-page book, and I was wondering how the author would keep up a crime novel over the course of 500 pages. Now, The Bone Collector was 510 pages, and it did drag at times. And if it didn't drag, I found that some of it was tedious. There was a lot of um, frenzied discussion because Lincoln Rhyme can't discuss a lot of the his perceptions or um, ideas at the crime scene, it all has to happen inside his room, his, his, his home. And so there's a lot of people talking and a lot of back and forth and dialogue that's rapid fire, which involves like six or seven different people. And it gets a little bit difficult to follow, um, especially when they use complicated scientific terms. And so that did help the book to, to drag a little bit. Um, so I was wondering how Barclay would keep 500 pages for a crime novel going. And um, I was so excited about this book when I finished it. I was so excited about the book as I was reading it. One of the things I do when I read is I'll get to the end of a chapter, and depending upon where I am or what time it is, I will flip ahead and I'll look to see how much longer the next chapter is to decide whether I can read it. And I found myself sitting there reading. And as soon as the chapter went in, I turned the page and just started reading. I didn't care how long the next chapter was. I was going to read it no matter what. That was how gripping this story was. I mean, it was just, I, it, it had elements of, of so many different genres of books. And yet it wove them all together so well that I truly could not wait for the next page. I could not wait for the next chapter. I could not wait for the end to find out what happened. Um, and I, I was just astounded and and really impressed with the author, an author I've never heard of before, an author who's got um, quite a few other books. And I've bought, at this point, um, one of the other books um, I already have on my shelf. Um, that I'm really excited to read to see if this is something that's indicative of this author or was this just the book? Um, because all the books are different. He writes um, not one character, but numerous characters or numerous characters. They're just, each book is a different character. Um, so the idea for this book, and it was told all in first person, which I really enjoyed. Um, there's a, the, the main character name of Jim Cutter lives next door to this family that's murdered. Husband, wife, teenage kid. Now, we actually, as a reader, see or witness the murder because Jim's son, who's also a teenager, very good friends with the son of the murdered family, he's at their house when the murders are committed. And he's doing some shady stuff. I mean, he's hiding in the basement and he's the, the family that gets murdered. They were actually going away on vacation and um, cut her son viewed this as an opportunity to set up his own little sex pad for he and his girlfriend. And so he's actually hiding in the basement when the murders are committed. Well, uh, it's so layered on top of that 
as it goes forward. Because not only is it an investigation into the family that was murdered and what's their backstory and what's their, what's the potential basis for their murder, but as the story goes, you learn that it's very possible that the murderers went to the wrong house, that they were supposed to go to the Cutter's house. And then you've got an examination to Jim Cutter and his life. And what is it that's in his life that could potentially expose them to murder or the ire of somebody who wishes to do them harm? It was, it, 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 it was part defending Jacob, because as you can probably imagine, their son does get arrested for the murder because the cops aren't stupid. They figure out that he was there. They figure out that he was there at the time the murders were committed. And they figure he's as good a suspect as anybody. There were aspects of Gone Girl because um, the wife has her own backstory. There's a whole nother world of, of um, drama involving Cutter's wife. And on top of that, you've got the potential, because it's a... a a first-person account. You got the potential that this is an unreliable narrator who's not telling you everything, who knows more than he's actually letting on, but he wants to be coy and he wants to really be selective about what information he tells you. Now, what's interesting is I, I was worried that that was the case. And so as I was reading it, I was picking up on clues that the author would, that the author, that the, that Jim, our first person narrator was giving, because he went over to the house. This is a obvious, obvious, at least in my mind, indication. After the murder, they, the cops come to Jim's house and they say to Jim and his son, um, and his son's name, Derek, and they say, Derek, um, you were really close friends with the boy who was killed. We want, and, and we know that you were over there because Derek was at the house as the family was packing up and ready to leave, and that wasn't a secret. Um, they said to Derek, would you mind coming back to the house with us, doing a walkthrough, and telling us if it seems as if anything is out of place, anything is missing, anything's out of the ordinary, because they're not sure what the motive was for the killing. They don't know if it was a robbery. Is there anything missing? So Derek and Derek's dad, Jim, go over to the house, and they do a walkthrough of the, of the crime scene of the house. And Jim says at some point that the house looked different than the last time he was there. Okay, well, right there you know, oh, so he's been there before. There's some reason why he was there. There's some reason why he's telling us that it looks different than the last time he was there. And so that raised my, my eyebrows and went, oh, well, maybe he's trying to tell us something. And I'm not going to give away whether Jim was an unreliable narrator or not. I can tell you he made some stupid decisions at times. He let his, his uh, temper and his anger get in the way of rational thinking. Um, but the reveal was not even important by the time the story was over. Because the reveal, when you find out who the bad guy was, you, you understand it. Um, it certainly gives you pause to question uh, the rational thinking of the disturbed mind for whatever that is i mean you, you got to think the people who are committing these murders and these crimes they're not rational thinking people anyways and yet when you find out the reason why this guy did what he did you realize wow that is really irrational that really doesn't make any sense and part of me was like come on man you should know better and the other part of me says 
well, you're fucking nuts, so you wouldn't know better. You'd think that this was a rational uh, explanation for your conduct. Nevertheless, it didn't really matter so much to me who the culprit was or why he did what he did or she did what she did, put it that way. Really what kept the story going was that every chapter there was a new discovery, every chapter there was a new conflict, and every chapter there was a new stress point for our main character. And I, 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 this is a, a book that if this, if Miss, if Linwood Barclay is at Thriller Fest, if he's, I, I would love to sit down with him for five minutes and ask him this question of how he plotted this book out. You know, I, I, I've mentioned it before and I've talked about it, uh, that, that I heard an interview with Lee Child and that he, he doesn't write from an outline, that Jack Reacher, um, he just kind of follows Jack wherever he goes. Now, I don't know that I really believe that, but he says that he writes Jack Reacher and if Jack gets into a corner, he writes Jack out of the corner. But this book was so layered and so detailed in the backstories of the characters that from my mind, not having any idea of how you one would go about writing a book of this magnitude, I can only picture the amount of outlining that the author did because he had to create entire life stories for these characters because all of them all of them had a background which may or may not have figured into the cause of the murders and and so when i say it's it, it crosses so many genres i mean you've got the gone girl you've got the defending jacob but then you've got like peyton place You've got the affairs. You've got the family drama. You've got the challenging family dynamics. You've got all of that. And it was really remarkable how they all fit so well together in this puzzle that at the end of the day, the puzzle may not have looked like anything. I mean, you, you like to think you're putting a puzzle together and it, it's going to show a picture at the end. This book, you put the pieces together in the puzzle and it may not have displayed any type of a cognizant picture and yet the pieces fit so snugly together that i just wonder what type of a preparation there was in getting ready for this book um i really really liked this book i liked it because it was fast i i liked it because i can't remember the last time i read a book which was really in its its traditional paperback i mean they're all like the mass market paperback the taller thinner garbage books um both the the bone collector and the alexandria link were like that this one was a paperback you know like the book that when you're sneaking off to the bathroom at work you can put in your pocket and nobody will know that's what this book was um but still it was it was 500 pages and i just i it, it even had aspects of a book i read a while ago called A Beautiful Life um, by Helen Schulman, which was a, a, you know, more of a family drama than it was a mystery because it wasn't really a mystery. But it, it really brought all of these together. And it's one of those things that I mentioned it before. 
It was a book that, what an amazing concept I wish I could have written myself, and yet I never would have thought to do it. That's why I think this book was so compulsively readable to me, because I never would have thought how to write this book. I never would have been able to come up with all of the backstories, all of the layers, all of the drama, all of the twists and turns, and yet bring it all together in a way that it was cohesive. I couldn't have done it. That It was that to me. And look, I'm not saying this was, um, you know, this wasn't Bleak House. This wasn't, um, you know, The Grapes of Wrath or The Great American Novel. I'm not trying to raise its esteem so high that it rises to the echelons of, of you know, those modern or traditional classics. But a lot of crime dramas, a lot of thrillers are one-dimensional. Um, even just the the Bone Collector. It wasn't traditionally one-dimensional because you had the added aspect of the handicap and the buddy cop and there was the backstories of the characters and, and Amelia's and, and Lincoln Rhymes' character back, uh, backstories do figure in in some respect minimally into the, the crime. But this was an entire universe put together piece by piece in a way that was truly uh, remarkable. Um, and so I don't want to give anything away. I really encourage you to read it if you're out there. Um, I, I just was that impressed by it. I really was. Um, so that was Lewin Barclay's Too Close to Home. Now, I am taking a break from Thriller Fest. I have to take a break because a book came out that I've been looking forward to for about a year called The Devil's Workshop by Alex Grecian. And I've talked about his previous book, The Black Country. I talked about the book before that called The Yard. Um, and truly, Alex is turning into one of my favorite authors that as soon as the book comes out, I need to be at the bookstore first thing in the morning to pick it up. Um, so that's the one that's uh, up for reading right now. I'm actually going to sign off and, and go pick it up because I'm that excited about it. But after um, after I finish that one, it's going to be back to the Thriller Fest authors. Um, I've got my, uh, my Lucas Davenport, uh, James Stanford. No, what's his name? John Sanford. Uh, the Lucas Davenport, John Sanford book coming, whatever the first book was the, in the Prey series. Um, I do have the Goosebumps. I've got the third Cotton Malone book. I've got that Heather Graham book, which uh, we'll see how that goes. And um, so, yeah, I'll report on that next time. Um, so anyways, this is Rob Cohen. I know that uh, a lot of people who are following me on Twitter, they're actually following me at, my, at both my Twitters. I tried to set up the Book Therapy 13 Twitter, but... Um, in all fairness, a lot of you know the book Therapy 13 is also Rob Cohen 13, and they're interchangeable, and I retweet each other, and yada yada. So if you follow one, follow them both. Please send me an email. Um, I get them every once in a while from actually the authors who I talk about. Um, I tweet at them that I talked about their books, and some of them have tweeted me back that they appreciated the comments. I know Alex Grecian tweeted me back after I read The Black Country. Louis Bayard uh, Facebooked me after uh, I reviewed Roosevelt's Beast. Vaughn Entwistle tweeted me after I reviewed Revenant of Thaxton Hall. So I appreciate the authors out there who are tweeting, but if any of you are out there, 
uh, please let me know. Uh, you can find me at booktherapy13 at gmail.com, booktherapy13 book, book at Twitter, uh, robcohen13 on Twitter, and um, yeah, I think that's it. So this is uh, Rob Cohen. Thank you for letting me lie on your couch.